I want to go ahead and get started here. Um, there's a lot that um, hopefully we can cover. Um, if you guys did not get a chance, there is a packet um, in the back, um, and it covers all of it. So what we did last week, all the way through what I hope we will cover um, this week. But what I did was I gave all of the scripture references, and, and what I hope is that you guys will take some time to dive back into scripture. Um, you know, after today, you will, you will, like I talked about last week, be a Berean. You will seek this out. You will, um, you will take some time to study this, um, and men, you will study this with your family. A couple things that I want to, to talk about here real quick, and, and I kind of want to set up, I probably should have done this last week. Um, I... I love Romans, um, and really, you know, Martin Luther, John Calvin, um, they, they really, um, they, they basically said that Romans is kind of the key to the rest of Scripture, um, to the point where um, I, I'm working with Pastor Andy, we're evaluating a book right now to actually do a study on Romans um, specifically, um, and so with the church somehow. Um, so, uh, really, if you have not t- spent much time in Romans, I really, really, really exhort you, implore you, whatever other word you want to use, please dive into Romans. Um, you can go to the book of Romans, and it really, in my um, opinion, really opens up the rest of Scripture. And I want to start in Romans 8 real quick. And I, I, the reason I want to, to hit on Romans 8 through, I think, 4 is simply because, to me, this really is where we're going. The whole, the whole study of soteriology, um, the doctrine of salvation, really leads to this. Um, and, and something that's really been on my heart is that we have a way, we have in Scripture a way that we can be 100% confident of our salvation. And I think it's especially important in the world that we live in today. I mean, obviously... Um, everything, there, there's no structure, there's no black and white to anything. Anything, everything is so willy-nilly, whatever you feel, you know, so on and so forth. And, and I would argue, um, and I think most of you would agree, our feelings betray us, you know, every single day. Some days I feel okay, other days I don't feel okay. And if our salvation is hanging on that, if, if we are wanting to feel saved or, or we're looking for, for something like that, um, we will fail. Uh, I mean, how many have, of you have failed at the beginning of the day just simply because you couldn't, you, you missed your devotion or your scripture reading or something that you wanted to plan? You just messed it up right off the get-go before you even maybe put on your clothes for the day. And so if we are hanging on our works, on what we do, um, the amount of scripture that we read, the way that we pray, whatever it is, we, we fail from the get-go. So Romans 8, th- this is where it all goes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So to me, that's where it all goes. That right there is, is what we can rest on. And when we understand 
the atonement, when we understand the work of Christ, and as, as you'll see earlier in your packet, if you weren't here last week, this is a definite plan of God. This is God's plan, eternal plan from the, before the foundation of the earth of how the Trinity would work together to save sinners. And so we can look at this if we accept that um, atonement on our behalf, then this is what we can say. We are no longer condemned. We know what the end is because Christ, bear, Christ bared it all for us. So when we look at, and sorry, Romans 8, I don't think it was any, I may have quoted it somewhere in there. There's lots of scripture references, but that was kind of off the outline that I provided for you guys. Again, if you didn't get an outline, it's, it's in the back. If I ran out, let me know. I'll make copies and they'll be back there um, for you um, by the end of uh, today, before you guys go home. So when we look at this whole idea of salvation, how many would be bold enough or truthful enough to say that you have struggled with the idea? Because I would argue very, very, I think Scripture is very, very clear that God elects. Oh, I said it. How many of you have struggled with the idea of predestination, election? You may have struggled with eternal hell. Um, some go to hell, some don't. How many have even struggled with um, how, what, what happens? What, why is there evil in the world? Why are little babies born with cancer? Um, all of these atrocious things that we are confronted with every day. How many of you have struggled with one or all of those? Would you admit to that? So I want to read something. So when we look at this, I think we have a tendency, I don't think, we, I'll say I, have a tendency to read something in Scripture, and then what do we do? We start to kind of go down this road of, um, instead of exegesis, pulling out eisegesis. We start taking our own filter, using our own filter, and reading into Scripture. Okay, well, I can't be reading this right because I say a good and loving and righteous God would never send people to hell. So something is wrong with Scripture. John Calvin um, wrote something, and it's a little lengthy, but I do want to read it because I think it is helpful for us whenever we approach any scripture, whether we're talking about salvation or we're talking about the sacraments, we're talking about the Lord's Supper, whatever we're talking about, I think we have to be very, very careful. careful. And again, especially in today's day and age where we are told that there is no, there's no right and wrong. You know, I mean, we even see it in Genesis, Right. What did Satan say? What did the serpent say to Eve? Did God really say that? That's not true. That's, that won't happen. You know, so I mean, we see it from, from the very fall of man where there's this question of, did God's word, is, is, that, really, is that really what they meant? That, that's, that's not true. So John Calvin says this, when, when looking at Scripture and how we should approach Scripture, and I'll, be, I'll, I'll try to be brief. Um, so he's talking specifically about predestination, but again, th this applies to all of Scripture, how we approach um, Scripture. Given 
that the controversy over predestination is itself somewhat obscure. Men's curiosity makes it involved, perplexing, and even dangerous because the human mind cannot refrain from following every twist and turn and climbing far too high. It would like, if, it were, if that were possible, to allow God no secrets which it does not pour over and carefully examine. Since we see many who fall into this kind of boldness and presumption, many indeed who are not otherwise bad, we ought to advise them about the best course of action. First then, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, again, or anything within Scripture, they are entering the sanctuary of divine wisdom. Anyone who pries into it and who delves too brashly and confidently will never reach the point where he satisfies his curiosity, but will stumble into a labyrinth from which he will find no way out. For it is not right that the things which God has sought to conceal and whose knowledge he has kept for himself should be scrutinized in this way by man, by men. Nor is it right that the lofty wisdom which he wished us, to, wished us to revere rather than comprehend so that we might wonder at his greatness should be made subject to the human mind or sought out in the depths of his eternity. As for the secrets of his will which he thought good to impart to us, he has borne witness to them in his word. And what he thought good to impart to us was everything which he knew would be relevant and rewarding to us. Once we grasp, grasp the idea that God's word is the only path which allows us to investigate, I want to say that again, once we grasp the idea that God's word is the only path which allows us to investigate all that we may lawfully know about him and is likewise the only light by which we behold all that, we, that may be lawfully seen by him, it will easily stop us from acting impulsively. For then we will realize that by going beyond the bounds of Scripture, we will be straying off into darkness and will inevitably, with every step, wander, stumble, and trip up. And I think that's very, very um, instructive to us. Again, we're talking about salvation. Um, and of course, he's talking about predestination there. But when we look at Scripture and when we consider these things, it is very easy for us to go off of the path. And obviously, God has concealed things from us, okay? He has given us the whole canon of Scripture. We talked about in that in Bibliology. Everything that God wants us to know, he has given us. And obviously, he has hidden things from us, right? I mean, I think we all read Scripture and say, oh, why couldn't you tell me why this, you know? But again, we are to seek out Scripture, and what he talks about there is we are supposed to dive in, and we are supposed to, to study this and, and talk about it and have classes and, and meditate on it and pray about it. But when we start our human sinful minds, when we start to dive in different directions, and we start to really make judgments on something that is outside of, of the canon, then we really get in trouble. And I love how he talks about how we start to stumble in darkness. You know, his, his words there is being in a labyrinth and things like that. I think we can really, really struggle. And why I say all of this is because to me, and, and this has been very, this study has been very convicting for me, this whole study of Scripture and what we're getting ready to dive in here in the next few minutes about the atonement, um, everything else hangs on this, okay? The work of Christ and what that meant, 
It plays out through the rest of Scripture. How do we deal with the struggles of life? How do we deal with revelation? How do we deal with all of it? Hangs on this eternal work of the Trinity. So I'm going, to, I'm going to jump in here. We hit on it briefly last week, the penal substitutionary atonement. And I'm sorry, I'm not sure what page that's on, um, on your notes. But that's the, uh, it's 3A. And we hit on this briefly, but I just want to do a real brief um, recap. So we talked about last week the fact that God is righteous, um, that God is true, that God is perfect, and that he cannot have any dealings with sin whatsoever. Um, sin must be dealt with. And we talked about, obviously Pastor Dan did as well, that we are sinful, um, fallen, depraved sinners. Okay, we kind of draw those, those two distinctions there. So when we look at the penal substitutionary atonement, and, and I'm not just throwing around big words to throw around big words, okay? Um, we, we do need to, to pay very close attention to this. So we talked about, you guys answered this last week. So penal is what? It's penalty, okay? So pe there was a penalty, there is a penalty for sin. And all of you, if, if you, even if you weren't here, substitutionary is what? Substitution, right? So there's a penalty and there is a substitution, Okay, and one thing I think that you have there that, that I included, and I think I hit on it last week, but I want to go over it again. God does not love us because Jesus died for us. It's the other way around. Jesus died for us because God loves us. Okay, and sometimes I think that we have it, I, I, have, it, um, I have it there, uh, true and false, but sometimes we fall into, I think we just fall into this like, especially if you read the Old Testament, God is this wrathful God that is just waiting up there with lightning bolts and ready to strike us down because of our sin. Okay, he's just ready to take us out. And Jesus comes on the scene and he's sitting there and there's this cosmic battle and he's holding God here and he's stepping in between man and, and, and all of this and there's this battle, okay? Of course Jesus stepped in there. Don't lose what I'm saying here. But that is not the case. Again, I take you back to the eternal plan of God, okay? So, there is a penalty. Sin must be, um, must be judged, okay? Sinful man must be judged. But we also have to, and this is not in your notes, we also have to look at this whole idea of God's wrath, okay? What, is, what does our wrath look like? Okay, you imply wrath, anger, whatever. What, when you get angry, okay, whatever it is, let's say that you see some wrong that is done, okay, whether it's the per persecution of Christians, um, somebody is needlessly murdered, when you look at abortion, things like that, and you have this kind of this righteous indignation, what does the wrath of, of humans look like? Anybody want to throw some ideas out there? Why take a drink of coffee? Paul. Is, is our wrath kind of, I like chaos, is it, kind, is, it, is it planned usually? Is there much structure to our wrath, right? We're, we're usually, what, very emotional with our wrath, right? We are upset 
you have, you have um, whether it's, it's personal or, again, you see some heinous thing done to innocent people, you get angry, right? Let's take them out. Let's take them out. You know, whatever it is, let's, let's hit them with everything that we got kind of thing. That is not God, okay? God is not sitting in heaven. He was not surprised by sin, and he's ready. Okay, see, I gave him a simple instruction. Don't eat of the tree. You messed it up, and now I'm taking it out on all of you, okay? God's wrath is very calculated. It's just, it's holy, but sin must be dealt with. And even when you look at the garden, when God, when um, Adam and Eve hide from God and it all comes out, obviously God knew about it, but when it all comes, came out that they sinned and they ate of the tree, who did God curse? Who did God curse in that whole, in that whole interchange? Did he curse Adam? Did he curse Adam directly? No, he cursed the ground, right, that, that Adam worked on. Did he, did he uh, curse Eve? He didn't curse her. He said that she would have pain, and you can look at this later on in that account. She would have pain through childbirth, okay? But he cursed the serpent. God didn't even curse Adam and Eve, and you can read that there. I won't, I won't take the time to do it. He cursed the serpent, and he said that the seed of Eve would do what to the serpent? Crush his head, right? He cursed him. Now, again, he cursed the ground, but then he made a way, right? So right there, the fall of man, what does God do instantly? Makes a way, right? There's already a way, okay? You're going to have trouble in this life. Women, you're going to have pain in childbirth. Men, you're going to have to work through the sweat of your brow to provide. But the only cursing was on Satan, okay? So it's very calculated. There, there's no just this wrathful um, type of, of action that goes on there. So when we look at the atonement, you'll see there, and, and I know Pastor Dan has talked about probably anybody who's preached, you've heard about this idea of propitiation. Anybody want to take a stab at what propitiation means? It's a big word. Anybody? So propitiation is, um, and we're going to quote some scripture there. You'll see it here in just a second. But propitiation is the appeasement. It is the, the, the person that is paying. It's a payment. It is uh, multiple different words that you, that you could apply to that. And we'll, we'll look at that here in scripture. And I'm just going to read it this morning um, instead of having you guys look it up so we can try to get through as much as this as possible. So let's just go to Romans 3. Romans 3, 25 through 26, starting in 25. Whom God put forward, we're talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So Jesus was the propitiation to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So again, what is the primary reason of salvation? It is to show glory to God, okay? And we see that even here in this text, all right? So propitiation is, is an appeasement, is a payment, okay? Hebrews 2.17, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, 
so that he might be, meaning us, meaning man, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, so to make that payment. 1 John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then finally, 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, and that's important, right? Not that we have loved God. John redirects us. Not that we did anything, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, so this whole idea of the atonement, there is the, there is the propitiation. Christ is the propitiation. He is sent to pay. Okay, and I think that um, I hit on this last week. I would have to go back in my notes. I, it, you can see it, I, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember where exactly in the notes. But I think this is where we can get sloppy on our gospel presentation, even in our thinking, that when we accept Christ, step one, step two, he forgives our sins. Okay, and that is not the plan. Okay, and just hang with me. Don't, don't jump to conclusions yet, okay? Because not, not that that's wrong, but we're missing the biggest part there. The, the biggest part in the middle is this propitiation, okay? This atonement for sin. We see this in the Old Testament, in Exodus. When Moses is up on the mountain, what does Israel do? Do they behave themselves? What does, what does Israel do? Someone tell me. Huh? Right? Like, I mean, so he's up on this mountain, okay? He's, he, they've seen all of these works, which to me is just so striking. It's just such a resemblance of what we as humans do. Like, can you imagine seeing everything that the Israelites see? And the minute, figuratively, the minute that Moses goes away, what do they do? They start gathering all their jewelry and make a calf and start worshiping it. I mean, like, if that is not an illustration of depraved man, I don't know what is. And we see it over and over and over again, right, in, in the whole Old Testament. I saw somewhere, just as a side note, the Old Testament, the purpose there is to reveal God, right? And we see a revealing of God in the Old Testament, right? And we see how bad, <laughs> how human beings, specifically his chosen people, screw it up every single time. All right, so Moses is up there. And um, the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 32, Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Verse 10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may be burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great, nation, um, a great nation of you. And again, this is just showing. It wasn't just I'm just going to burn them up. No, there's a plan here. But I'm going to judge this wrath. We're up here, you know, Moses is, 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 is um, talking directly with God and here his chosen people who he's brought out of Egypt are doing this 
this, this terrible act of worshiping some calf, golden calf. Further in Exodus then, the, what I'm getting at is, the next, is, is in verse 30. So it's 32, 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make an atonement for your sin. So I can pay for your sin. I can make this atonement. And this whole idea, right, there's a day of atonement. This idea of atonement is all the way through the Old Testament. And these sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament that the Jews took part of was just a, um, a demonstration, a visual demonstration of what needed to happen. Blood needed to be spilled, right? There's life in the blood, um, that, that God talks about, right? Because they weren't supposed to eat anything with blood still in it because life was in the blood. So this blood must be spilled. We have the Day of Atonement where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and once a year and, and would make atonement for all of the sins for the nation of Israel. So again, this atonement um, must be in this plan of salvation. And this is the part I'm getting at where I think sometimes we leave out, not intentionally, right, is that this is not a forgiveness of sin, right? It's not, again, like I just said a few minutes ago, that we accept Christ, we ask him into our heart, and God forgives because Jesus died, okay? What we need to see here is that the full wrath of God was poured out on Christ, Sin was atoned for. The payment was made for past sins, current sins, and future sins. What did the Israelites have to do? Right? Every day, every month, every year, they just had to keep doing it, right? Had to keep going back. Because the spilling of blood of goats and animals does not atone for sin. Every time, there had to be new atonement for sin, okay? That is why Christ had to be perfect, because if he wasn't perfect, whose sin would he have atoned for? Whose sin would he be paying for, I should say? His own, right? So how could he pay for our sin if he was paying for his own sin? So he comes to be man, but he's perfect. He follows all of the law. So then he can die, spill his blood for our sin. And we see this. We have this, the moment that I say and I don't think I'm wrong, the moment that God poured out his full wrath on Christ, we see it. We have it. Turn with me to Matthew 27. And we're very familiar with this text, but I want us to understand what is happening here. This is the moment where atonement is made. This is the moment that Christ receives the full payment, or he makes the full payment, I should say, the full wrath of God. Because up until this point, there's only one, I, I think there may be one other area, and it's slipping my mind. This is the only time where Jesus does not address God as Father. Okay, right here is when it happens. Matthew 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemis sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now stop there for just a moment. What were we just talking about? What do we see through scripture? 
This was a plan, right? Did Christ know what he was doing? We see it all throughout the gospel. He's talking, he's repeating himself over and over to the disciples. This is my plan. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to them. Okay? All of these terrible things are going to happen. So why? Why all of a sudden is Christ on the cross and he's asking this question? Now, I want to be careful here. I, I, I don't want to. We're not given exactly why. But I, and I don't want to go against what I just read that John Calvin had for us. Did Christ not sweat drops of blood in the garden, right? He, he knew, like he, had, he felt the power. He knew what was going to happen. But I think at this moment, and you may disagree with me, I think at this moment, he realized, he felt the full power of sin. And I don't know if it's too far. I, I hesitate to say this, but I'm going to say it because in my mind, I wrestle with this a little bit, right? Christ was fully God and fully man. But I can't help but wonder, at this point, he was still a little bit surprised. And I don't know if that's wrong or not. Excuse me if you think I'm totally off base there. Because he, had, had Jesus ever been separated from the communion or fellowship with, with God the Father? Never, right? Up until this point, again, Father, every time he prays, Father, not my will but your will. But at this point, he's not even, my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? There's now no fellowship. And I think it's at this point that the full wrath was put onto Christ. Our wrath, our sin was laid on Christ, and God turned his back on sin. He turned from sin. He imputed the wrath, our, or our sin. He imputed our sin on Christ. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the rest of it here. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on the reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And here's the beauty of this whole text. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and rocks were split. So at that moment, God's wrath was poured out on Christ. The full payment was made. And I know I'm repeating myself, but to me that is just so amazing. It is so um, beautiful. It is so moving. Because what does this mean? It does not mean, because I don't know about you, I don't find much comfort in, against, I don't find much comfort in God just forgiving. I don't think that we understand that, right? What do we expect in life? You guys who've been in law enforcement or anything at all, we don't, we're not good with that, right? If you, if you sin, if you, if you um, uh, commit a crime, what must happen? Justice, right? Like we demand justice. We don't like to be wronged by anybody, right? I mean, what happens sometimes that we just came off the marriage intensive? What sometimes happens in our marriage? You feel wronged by your partner, and so what you're having trouble letting go of that. Like you wronged me. Like, we, we understand this even as fallen sinners. So justice had to be paid, and it was paid. It wasn't forgiven. It wasn't just 
brushed away. No, it was, it was brushed away. Not meaning to contradict myself. Why was it brushed away? Because it was paid for. It, it was paid for, right? Money was paid. The price was paid. And now we're moving on. Right? And I think that is so important. Again, not that our gospel, I'm not saying, and, and please, I hope that I haven't offended anyone. I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination that your gospel message, if you have talked to children or whatever and said, you know what, if you accept the death of Christ on the cross, your sins are forgiven. No, they are forgiven. Why are they forgiven? Because they were paid for. Justice was done for then and for eternity. So why am I hitting so hard on this? Because now we can rest. We can rest in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry anymore because we will sin. We have sinned. We're probably sinning right now. But Christ paid the price to the point to where he cried out, God, why are you forsaking me? Okay? All right. Sorry, I could go on and on about that. And this has been a convicting time of study for me because um, I, I, it just really moved me. I, I just don't know that sometimes we remember this, this or, or we take into account what actually happened on the cross, right? We, lots of times we see the pictures, we see the goriness and all of these things, but it's the wrath of God that was put on, on Christ. So bring this all together. Sorry, we're going to move forward. John 10, 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give, I give them eternal life that they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater, talking about his sheep, has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So that's what we have. Right? We could probably stop there. I'm not going to, at least for the next few minutes. Christ comes. He dies. He pays the full price. And nothing can separate us from God. Nothing can take them out of the Father's hand and then Christ says, I and the Father are one. And then I also, do I have Romans 8, 28 through 30 there in your notes? And as we look further on, again, I, I think this is, so, this is so powerful too well, and it kind of helps bring it together more. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we're going to talk about justification here in a second, glorification or sanctification. Okay, I've included it in your notes, but I, I, I've defined it a little bit, but we're going to talk about it. So the reason I, I put this text in here is, again, to give, um, to give assurance, to give, a, to give us assurance. The work will be completed, Right? It will be completed. God, and, and don't get hung up on the whole predestined thing. That is a whole different two-month class probably, if not longer. Okay? But is it in Scripture? 
So if you struggle with election and predestination, feel free to, um, we can talk about it, um, maybe do another class about it, see Pastor Dan, Pastor Andy, Pastor Paul, whatever. But again, it's there, okay? We need to pray about it. We need to understand it. We need to, I think, heed what John Calvin said. We don't need to go outside of what's given to us in Scripture, but we have it here. And I think I will just say this about election, predestination, whatever you want to, what, well, not whatever you want to call it. It is, it is here. Is to me, it gives unbelievable peace to see this here, that whom he predestined, he called. Okay, we didn't out of anything good in us seek him. He calls us, okay? And those whom he called, he justified. And we'll talk about justification here in just a second. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we need to deal with this, okay? We, we don't have time this morning, but that should give us peace. That should give us assurance that God is working. This is God's work, Okay, this is not your work this morning by coming to church. This is not your work by working in Awana. This is not your work through serving in a soup kitchen. You are doing that as fruit of what God has done for you. So let's look quickly, regeneration. I'm going to move kind of quickly um, because I've tried to lay everything out there so you can study it a little bit further yourself. But I do want to hit on a few of these things because we do hear about regeneration. Um, we do hear the Spirit's work, justification. So I just want to briefly go over them. Because again, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks just on this part of systematic theology. So regeneration, work of the Holy Spirit that gives the sinner a, renew, uh, sinner a renewed origination. Okay, So when children are born, what do they do to help that whole process? Women. Can everyone say with me, nothing? Right? Did that little baby do anything but probably delay things, not present the right way, and cause you a lot of pain? Can I get an amen? So the, the, the baby doesn't do anything. And I think we can draw that. I think, I don't think, I, I feel very sure the reason that Christ and, and the, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we have this um, analogy of birth is just that, Right? That the baby doesn't do anything in that work, but it is a coming into the world. It is a birth, okay? So we were dead, right? We were dead, bloated corpses, right? Nothing that we could do. And there's this regeneration. There is this new birth. We were sinners. We were born into the world, right? Nicodemus, they have this whole exchange, Jesus and Nicodemus. He doesn't understand it, even though he's a high ruler, um, uh, within the, the, uh, uh, the Jew, a Jewish ruler, he doesn't understand this, right? John 3, um, 3 through 8, and I'm not going to read this. We're all very familiar with it, this interchange. Like, how am I supposed to go back in the womb? What are you talking about? And Christ is like, wait, you're supposed to be a high-up ruler and understand all this, and you don't, don't understand the simple truth, okay? So this idea of rebirth, okay? And this is performed by the Spirit. And at the end of that, in the end of verse 8, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So again, remember this Trinitarian work. The Spirit comes in, takes out your heart of stone, and gives you a new heart. So you can even understand. You, you can even understand the things of God. Even, and some of you have experienced this. Very real in your lives, in your testimony, is you wanted nothing to do with, with Christ. I think sometimes if you were raised in a biblical home, 
at least I'll speak for myself, those lines are blurred a little bit. Like, because you always knew John, like you maybe even you always knew John 3.16 for an example, right? So you heard the word of God, but at some point, you know, something changed, okay? And you, you can look back and see it, but you're not sure. Others of you really were living different lives. And when Christ, when the Holy Spirit changed you, when he gave you a new heart, that was something very definite. It was night and day. Okay, so you have experienced that. So the Holy Spirit changes us, all right? Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 1, 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to great, his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So again, we have perfect picture there. We were dead, the Holy Spirit comes in, and we are born again. 1 John 3, 9 through 10, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Right? So it's very clear. Works, right? You have those who are born of the devil and those who are born of God. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Okay, so we see this changing, we see this contrast be between children of the devil and children of God, all right? So this regeneration is done through the Spirit, it's done through the ministry of the Word of God. And this is where um, Calvinism, um, some of these, um, you, may, you may have heard it called hyper-Calvinism, right? Well, we don't need to go out and spread the gospel because if God is sovereign and all of these things were preordained, then we don't need to do all of those things. No, that's not the plan, okay? And again, we can go way outside of Scripture and start, you know, start trying to know the mind of God and start trying to put things where they aren't, okay? But God chooses through what you have a general call and effectual call, and I won't get deep in that, but the effectual call is that drawing, is that calling to the elect, Okay, and you have the general call, who's the spreading of the gospel. Okay, the gospel is sent out. Okay, and what we, what we have here is through God chooses to change our hearts and then through the preaching of the gospel to save. Okay, that is the plan. Okay, could you maybe make the argument, and I think we would need to be careful, does God need, I mean, what does, what does, uh, what does the Bible say about preaching? Through the foolishness of preaching, he chooses to save, okay? So it's not the power of the pastor. No, it's the gospel. God will use the gospel, will use the preaching. So through the word of God, through the preaching of the word, he saves, all right? Again, I'll just hit a couple of these because time is going by quickly. Man, John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Again, he can only believe when that regeneration happens. Okay? Do not be deceived, uh, James 1, 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my uh, beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth, 
that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. All right, I'm going to skip the next two. You guys can look at those on yourself. I really want to try to get through all of this. And then here's the big thing, that we are called to be discerning. Regeneration is evidence through good works and fruit, okay? So we have sections of Scripture that talk about what? Paul talks about this, that um, salvation without works is, is a dead salvation, okay? Again, this is where we have to be careful. We don't want to be what's called a biblicist, where we take something out of Scripture, one line, and go with that. We have to look at the whole canon of Scripture. We know, we are told over and over that it's not through works, okay? But what Paul's drawing attention here to is if you have somebody who claims salvation and there is no works, that's a dead salvation. It's not the works. But what we're told here in these, in these uh, texts is that you will have works. You will have fruit if it is a true saving faith. All right, Ephesians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord is, what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? We revere Christ. He came and he he took the whole brunt of the whole power of God's wrath, and we, we revere him for that. And then we should want to know more, right? Tell me more about this Christ who came and died for me before the foundation of the, uh, or before I was even born. And then Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Again, not, not, um, not, uh, parts of scripture that we're not used to, okay? We've heard these so many times, but hopefully this sheds some new light on it. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I'm going to stop there. You can read the rest, 14 through 17. All right, so we have been forgiven, okay, and then we demonstrate that forgiveness, drawing, a, kind of bringing this all together. You'll see I have Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I'll just read it to you. Starting in, again, 36, uh, starting in verse 25. And catch how many I wills there are. And this is God speaking. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from your idols. Again, uh, just be aware this is not about salvation through baptism, the actual physical act of baptism. This is an idea of washing clean, sprinkling water, washing clean, all right? From all your idols, idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put with, the, and a new spirit, I will put with you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Again, this is a promise that we have in Scripture that God does these things. We don't do them, all right? And then obviously we know 2 Corinthians 5.17, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So we can rest in the fact that no matter what we've done in the past, we are a new creation. The old has passed away. It's gone. It's dead, okay? Um... 
All right. So we have conversion. I want to skip down. And you have all of them there. Please, please, please look at these. And again, if you have any questions, if you would like to talk about it more, um, please let me know. But I want to I talk briefly about this whole idea of justification. Justification, I think I have it there in your notes. Legal declaration of the, rege- uh, the regenerate being just by the imputation of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So again, it is almost... Um, in my viewpoint, um, an accounting type of, of idea here, right? What happens in accounting on a ledger? If something's on one side, what needs to be on the other side? Does there have to be something on the other side? Yeah, any accountants out there? Right, you can't just have, well, I've got this charge over here. Eh, I'm going to forget about it. No, there has to be something on the other side of the ledger. And I think that's what we have here, right? There's a justification. There is an imputing of God's righteousness. And I have a scripture reference there, Romans 3, 20 through 26. There is God's righteousness is put on the other side of the ledger for us. Okay? So again, I think it's so much more powerful than, again, this whole forgiveness of sins. No, the payment's been made. Again, I keep hitting on that. We have the sin. We have that we're sinners. But on the other side of the ledger is justification through Christ. All right, so we are whole. We are, it is, it is finished. They, they balance out. It equals out. All right, we don't have to worry about auditors at the end of the day. Right, when you go to stand before the throne, you don't have to be, worry about an auditor that comes and says, well, did Aaron really go to church enough? Did Aaron really memorize enough scripture? Did he really, and here's the big one for me, did he, did he ask for God or to Jesus to come into his heart the right way? That's where I think we have to be careful, okay? Again, I'm not saying you're wrong, okay? I'll, I'll just say this, and then, we, then we'll close in prayer. I struggle a little bit with sometimes in, in Christian circles. There's a song out there. I don't remember who sings it, and if you like it, I'm not, like, looking down on you. But I just think it does such a disservice, okay? Something about, and you guys will be able to tell me, you may be able to tell me what it is. You know, um, there, there's no God, Jesus is reckless love or whatever. You know, Jesus is coming. There's no wall that Christ won't come through and no mountain that he won't climb and, and all of this. And am I saying that's wrong? I'm just going to tell you my heart. I think it just minimizes and doesn't do service to what Christ did. He is not going through. A, is there a wall? No. Is there any mountain? No, it is finished. It was done. It is not the struggle between my sin and can Christ come after me and chase me and he's just reckless and letting it all. No, it is finished. It is done. There's nothing that we can do that falls outside of that. It's a catchy tune. I like it. But it does not, I don't think, do service to the gospel. And I think that's where we have to be careful, especially in today's day and age, because I think there is a diluting of truth. There's a diluting of the gospel. And then we get into this thing of it's all feelings based. And I think that's where we lose. We are our own worst enemy. A house divided will not stand. And if we cannot come, if we don't rest in this, right, this is where we should always come back to. You may not like something I said this morning or what Pastor Dan says, but the beauty of all of this is is that we, if we agree on this, what? We can come together in fellowship. We can come together and we can work through scripture. I think we should be doing that 
as Christians in this world, we should not have division over um, whatever it is, whether the way that we do the Lord's Supper, whether we should have elders or deacons. We can talk about those things, right? We can talk about what's biblical, but at the end of the day, this is the rock bottom. This is our root. This is our anchor. And as long as we agree on this, then we're good. We can still spread the gospel together and we can work through as sinners, we can work through systematic theology. We can work through all of these things together if we all come at the end of the day and we agree on this because we'll probably all be standing up there and going, wow, I was way off on that. That is not at all what I thought it was going to be. Man, oh man, I wish I could go back and change those classes or I could change that sermon. Right, But we'll all be standing in heaven because we agree on this point, because we are all right here, that there's nothing that we do, there's nothing that we can say, right? It is not the fact that the way that we asked or whatever, no, it's that God from the beginning of time eternally worked it out through the Trinity, sent Christ for our sin, and then the Holy Spirit comes and seals us, and it is done, it is finished, all right, so hopefully this has helped, guys. I hope it's not been too many rabbit trails. I hope the packet back there, did anybody not get a packet, by the way? I can make copies if you, if you don't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Christ confident back there didn't get a packet, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, so, um, so yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, but there's now no condemnation, right? Um, but I will make a copy and uh, I will make it available to you guys. So let's pray real quick and then we'll end. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your love. We are so thankful that for whatever reason, that you would love us and that you would send your son. And, and we say that, I say that so many times in prayers and, and classes and things like that. But Father, I just pray that you will impress on us the power that was, that was done on Calvary. That even in this crazy world that we live, we can rest in the saving work of Christ, because you crushed him with our sin. You imputed our sin, the sin that we committed today and the sin that we will commit tomorrow, because you are a holy God, and you must judge sin because you are perfect, because you cannot have any fellowship with any sort of sin. You are that perfect, and we don't even understand that. Help us to know and realize your love, Father. I pray that we will never turn from that, that we will never feel that we've got this all wrapped up and we've put a bow on it. We can set it aside and go somewhere else. I pray that we would constantly work out our salvation, that we would constantly go to your word just to make sure that we fully understand, not that we do anything, but that we will fully understand this amazing grace that we sing about. Father, I'm so thankful for everyone here today. I'm thankful that we've had this time together. I pray for for the rest of our studies in systematic theology. I pray for all of my brothers and sisters here as they dive into your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would open their hearts and would help them to understand the majesty of your word. Now, Father, be with us the rest of the day today. I pray for the fellowship that's coming up, the singing, um, um, the remembering of, of, of Teen Week, and most of all, your message as, as Pastor Andy opens up the Psalms. So, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.